Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Exodus how Moses was called the servant of the Lord and how his student Joshua took that title and was called the servant of the Lord more than anyone else. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching. So the question of the wise men in Matthew 2.2, where is the king of the Jews? The answer of Pilate, John 19.19. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the title was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? In Egypt, meeting the greatest need of the Jews to emancipate them from Egypt. Where is the king of the Jews? On a cross, meeting the greatest need of the Jews, dying for their sins. And the Jews said to God, no, in essence, the Jews said to God, no, our greatest need is to be free from Rome. We want a lion of the king to defeat Rome for us. And God said to the Jews, no, your greatest need is atonement for your sins. I'm not sending you now a lion for your king. I'm sending you a lamb for your king to die for your sins. And the Jews said to God, where is our king? And the Jews looked to God to be their king. And the Jews said, anyone but Jesus, not Jesus to be our king. And God says to the Jews, you are looking for me? Look on the cross. I'm up here on the cross under the sign that says the king of the Jews. And we can imagine that from the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was saying the words of Isaiah 45, 22, when the Jews would say, where is the king? Where is our king? And from Isaiah 45, 22, we can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross saying, look unto me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And the Jews said, who's that on the cross? And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am God and your king who has become a man to die for your sins. I am God. There is none else. Look unto me and be ye saved. And when the Jewish people had been bitten by those poisonous snakes in the wilderness during Moses' time, and then what happened for their remedy? God told Moses to make a brass snake. And that everyone, God promised, that everyone who looked up to that snake and believed that they would be healed, because God said they would be healed if they looked to the snake, they were healed. And just as Moses lifted up that brass snake in the wilderness and the people followed God's instructions and the people believed that by looking they would be saved from the fatal venom, so... Any Jew who looked at the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and believed that he was God, who had become a man to die for their sins and put his trust in him as their king, he was saved from the fatal venom of their own personal sin. Just as God had become the Lord God of the Hebrews, had become their God to save the Jews from Egypt, So God became Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, to save the Jews from their sins by dying for them on the cross. Now, we come now in verse 18. And so after Pharaoh, the king of the Egypt, the king of the Egyptians, is to hear that God has proclaimed himself to be uh, the Lord God of the Hebrews or the God or the King of the Jews, Then Moses was to tell Pharaoh that the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. What a tremendous statement. 
God has met with us. That was what he was to say. God has met with us. Their message was, God met with us, and he says to you, let us go. All their authority, Moses and the elders, came by the fact that they said, God met with us. What is tremendous is that God has made it possible for us to meet with him. And just as the Jewish people had one place where they met with God, and that place was the place that God chose later on in this, their history goes on, and it says in, in Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In the same chapter, in verse 22 of Exodus 25, it says, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. See, God had one meeting place where he met with the Jewish people, and that was in the tabernacle. So today, God has chosen one place where he will meet with us, where he meets with man, and that place is described in John 1.14, where it says, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was made flesh, and he dwelt among us, or literally, he tented, or he tabernacled among us. So just as God met with the Jewish people in the tabernacle, our tabernacle is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Moses met with God, we meet God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And when we come to the Bible, we don't just come to a book to learn it. We come to the Bible to meet with God. And our Bible time, the time we spend with the Bible, is a success if we come away from our Bible time and if we can honestly say the words of verse 18, God has met with me. And when we come to our morning devotion time, we don't just come to put in a required amount of time that we got, okay, we got to check this off, we got to read, we got to pray. Well, when we come to our devotion time, we come to meet with God. And our devotion time is a success if we can honestly say at the end of our devotion time the words of verse 18, God has met with me. And the power behind the demand of Moses and the elders, now let us go, came when they said, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And when we've taken time to meet with God in our morning devotions, and we know we've met with God, and he's infused us with his word, with the word of God during that time, then we carry the gospel to souls that need the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we speak to the lost, we speak with the same authority that Moses had. But when we have not met with God in the morning, and we've not taken time to let God put his fresh word in us each day, then we lose the authority. And when we bring the gospel to the lost, it's so mechanical. It's so dead. And we know it, and others know it also, because It was when Moses met with God that God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And it was when we meet with God that he sends us day by day, every day, to a lost world to bring the gospel to them. As it says in Romans 10, 13 through 15, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him and of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them which preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, Moses was to make his request to Pharaoh. Verse 18, now let us go, we beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So here we see God telling Moses to communicate four points to Moses. First, let us go. Ask Pharaoh for permission to leave. Second, we beseech thee, be humble with the request. Third, three days journey. Ask to be gone for only three days. Fourth, that we may sacrifice to the Lord. Tell him the purpose for why you want to go, to worship God. Now, the obvious question is, when we read this, is why in the world did God have Moses ask Pharaoh for only three days in a very submissive, gentle, humble way and explain to him the reason why he wanted only three days? I mean, this is so unusual to see God instructing Moses to be so meek, to be so gentle, to be so mild, in his approach, in his request to Pharaoh. Why in the world would God want Moses to act that way? Why should he act? He's about to destroy Egypt. Why should he act so meek and so gentle and so humble with Pharaoh? Why could God ever have in mind when he told Moses to approach Pharaoh in this way? Why is God instructing Moses to be so meek with Pharaoh? If I was to ask you today, Is there one outstanding title in the Bible for Moses? What would you say? What is the outstanding title that Moses has in the Bible? And there is one. There is. I mean, what is the one outstanding title for Moses? There is an outstanding title for Moses in the Bible, and it is the title, The Servant of the Lord. That's the Bible's outstanding title for Moses. He's called The Servant of the Lord. Moses called himself the servant of the Lord. In Exodus 4.10, Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and slow tongue. Moses said that also he was the servant of the Lord. In Numbers 11.11, and Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest this burden of all his people upon me? God called Moses the servant of the Lord in Numbers 12.8. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And when Moses died, how he was referred to? He was referred to as the servant of the Lord in Deuteronomy 34.5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Joshua, who was Moses' student, Joshua, who followed Moses, was the person who called Moses the servant of the Lord more than any other person in the Bible. Joshua, in his book, called Moses the servant of the Lord 15 times. That's how Moses' student, Joshua, thought of Moses. 
Joshua 1.13, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Joshua 1.15, you shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the servant, the Lord's servant, gave. Joshua 8.31, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel. Joshua 11.15, as the Lord commanded Moses' servant, so did Moses command Joshua. Joshua 12.6, then did Moses the servant of the Lord and the children of Israel smite? And Moses the servant of the Lord gave it for a possession. Joshua 14, 7. Forty years old was I when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea. And so on and so on. Over and over again, Joshua refers to Moses as the servant of the Lord. In the last reference to Moses in the Bible, which we have in the book of Revelation chapter 15. Look how he's called, Revelation 15, 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses is the Bible's example of the servant of the Lord. And when you think about that, when we think of the servant of the Lord, we should think of Moses. Moses, and also As the servant of the Lord, the Bible has clear-cut instructions for the servant of the Lord. And what God is telling Moses to say here is in perfect keeping with those clear-cut instructions for the servant of the Lord, how he must be and what he must do, and we have it. And please turn to it in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Here we've got the description of the servant of the Lord. And it says in 2 Timothy 2.24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his own will. See, these three verses here describe for us the servant of the Lord, specifically for what the servant of the Lord must be in his interaction with the lost, who this passage describes the lost as those who need repentance or those who are captive in the snare of the devil. In other words, the description, there's a description in this passage of the servant of the Lord as a soul winner. So notice in verse 24 that the first requirement for the soul winner servant of the Lord is that he must not strive. The soul winner servant of the Lord does not strive with the lost. He realizes from Ephesians 6.12 that as a soul winner, he's not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against against dark spiritual powers in high places. He realizes that if he strives with the lost, he loses the battle. And notice the next word in verse 24 of this part, 2 Timothy. It says that he must be gentle. The soul winner servant of the Lord must be gentle. Being gentle means that he's able to have compassion on the lost. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you, and walk away. But he has compassion, and this is description of the high priest in Hebrews 5, 1 through 2, where it says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way 
for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. See, you notice in 2 Timothy, this verse here, 24, that what he must be is gentle because he has this ability to have compassion on those who don't know, they're ignorant, and those who are far from God, they're out of the way. And because as the servant of the Lord, he also is surrounded with his own infirmities. He is afflicted by his own, he fights against his own sin. That's an infirmity. He has infirmities in his body. He has infirmities in his soul. And because he's compassed about with these infirmities, that gives him the capacity to have compassion on the ignorant and on those that are out of the way. So therefore, he's able to be gentle with them. He realizes the truth of 1 Timothy 2, 4, where it says, who will have all men, God will have all men, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He realizes the truth of 1 Peter 2.18 when it's speaking to servants, but it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So notice this. That he, he understands this concept, so he reaches out in gentleness to all men. Notice also in verse 24, The soul winner servant of the Lord must teach the lost, because he realizes That transformation of the soul comes through the mind. As it says in Romans 12, 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why it's so important to know the Bible, because this is the content of what we teach. And we need the Spirit of God to lead us to have just the right scriptures to teach that are custom fit to needs of the lost. You know, we're like the doctor, carries the doctor bag. But the Spirit of God is the one who reaches into the doctor bag and gives the exact medicine, the exact scripture, and says, here, and then we teach that to the lost. Notice in verse 24, the next word is patient. This says that the soul winner servant of the Lord must be a certain type of teacher, a patient teacher. If the lost does not respond to the gospel, the soul winner servant of the Lord doesn't give up, but he's patient. And he keeps on teaching and keeps on teaching. He doesn't write off this lost person, this lost soul. That's impossible for him. But he's patient. He's patient. And notice in verse 25, the next word is meekness. This is a further description of the soul winner servant of the Lord as a teacher. He must be meek. This is how Moses, it says, was the most meek man on the earth. The best way to be meek is to have a sober thinking. Sober thinking, to think soberly of ourselves, as it says in Romans 12, 3. Every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. To be meek is not to think of ourselves as elevated above others. Meekness is an attitude. It's a spirit, which is described in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. See, the attitude of the spirit of meekness is to consider ourselves that we are capable of the same sins as the lost, and we're just one bad decision away from their sins. And notice in verse 25, the next word is instructing. This describes the direction of the soul winner servant of the Lord as a teacher. He is an instructing teacher. Instructing does not just describe 
some cold, distant lecturer that's not engaged with the person that he's instructing. Instructing describes a teacher who is engaged with the person that he's teaching. A good instructor engages the student by listening to the student, listening by watching. A good instructor works to make what he is saying to be applicable to the student. Next, notice in verse 25, the words, if God. That describes the hope of the soul winner servant of the Lord as an instructor. He's full of hope and love hopes all things, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. If he has the if God hope, that's a hope that no matter how far a lost person is from God, there's always hope with God. As the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 19, 26, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's hope. That's the if God hope. Then notice in verse 26 the words, they may recover. This describes the goal of the soul winner servant of the Lord as an instructor. He is clear in his goal. He sees the lost as clearly as helplessly trapped by the devil. He sees the lost as held by the devil by the will of the devil. He sees the lost as able to be recovered, as able to recover themselves because God is able to give them the ability to be saved. And his goal is clear. He wants to see a recovery. And notice next in verse 26, those very important words that they may recover themselves. This describes the dignity that the soul winner servant of the Lord has for the lost as he instructs them. Where it says those words, that they may themselves, this shows that the soul winner servant of the Lord clearly understands that he cannot push, he cannot coerce, he cannot force, he cannot pressure, he cannot compel, he cannot overpower the lost to be saved. He understands that God has crowned each person with the sovereignty of choice. That's the sovereignty that God has given to man, the sovereignty of choice. God crowns each person with the sovereignty of choice, and the soul winner serving the Lord honors that God has given that crown of sovereignty to each lost person. He knows that for a lost person to save, to be saved, it must be his decision and his decision alone. So he constantly leads the lost to the water, but he does not try to force the lost to drink. He is a gentle persuader. He knows when to back off to not be overbearing. He understands that the whosoever refers to the lost and the lost alone, where it says in Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see God instructing Moses from 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 to be the servant of the Lord who must not strive with Pharaoh, to be the servant of the Lord that is gentle with Pharaoh because God loves Pharaoh. God wants Pharaoh to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Moses, God wants Moses to show Pharaoh that he's a great sinner and God's a great savior. God wanted Moses to, to show Pharaoh that he could be saved and not end up going to hell. Therefore, God was telling Moses in Exodus 3, try to teach Pharaoh. 
Be patient with Pharaoh. Meekly instruct Pharaoh who's opposing himself. Speak to Pharaoh with the goal that Pharaoh should come to repentance and acknowledge the truth that the Lord God is the God of the Hebrews. Seek to see Pharaoh recover himself out of the snare of the devil that's taken Pharaoh captive. But above all, honor the fact that Pharaoh must make his own choice for God and that all Moses can do is to appeal to Pharaoh to be saved. As mean and as cruel as we know Pharaoh was, to see God instruct Moses to be so gentle, so humble, so meek, so instructive, so patient, so hopeful with Pharaoh is a great lesson for us because we are servants of the Lord. And how God told Moses to be with Pharaoh is how we are to be with the lost. We are not being a servant of the Lord when we strive with the lost instead of praying to God for the lost. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we are harsh with the lost instead of being gentle with the lost. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we shun a lost person as hopeless instead of seeing every person as loved by God. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we are proud with the lost instead of being humble. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we are overbearing with the lost instead of meek. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we talk down to the lost instead of humbly teaching the Bible. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we are impatient with the lost, instead of being patient. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we are pessimistic that a lost person can be saved, instead of hopeful for his salvation. We're not being a servant of the Lord when we try to force a decision from the lost to be saved, instead of honoring the dignity of their own choice. So what we see God doing with Moses here in Exodus 3 is to guide him to be a good soul-winning servant of the Lord as he deals with lost Pharaoh. And when we see God instructing Moses for how to be a servant of the Lord, we see God giving us the same instructions so that we can follow Moses and be good servants of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being so patient, so instructing, so gentle yourself and meek and kind. And Lord, we pray that we might learn as we enlist ourselves gladly to be in your school, to be good servants of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. If you'd like more information about Tom Cantor, the Friendship with God radio program, or Israel Restoration Ministries, go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us today at one 800 247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening and join us again with Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program.